are continuing, as you might guess we will be doing for a little while, our series on this present time. We're talking, for those of you that may be new to the church, new to the family, we have been talking about living for the Lord in this present time. A few times in the New Testament, the scripture describes the age in which we live. Sometimes it calls it the last days, um, but several times it uses the idea of this present time. It means that there are things that are going on now uh, that have never gone on before, and it means that it won't always be this way. We are moving to an eternal kingdom, but in the time being, we have to learn how to live in this present time, and the Spirit of God does such a beautiful job of helping us do that. Let's begin today, as our custom is, let's join our hearts in praying the way Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Bunk, thank you for reminding us that this is a house of prayer. And uh, we are always so thankful that we can bring to the Lord our request. Now we're going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 2 uh, in just a moment. Um, the message is one that uh, you've heard before, the general outline. Uh, I've changed the meat on the bones in order to talk about this present time. But this won't be new material to you, most of it. But it is something that I think is worthy of being repeated and reminded um, when the New Testament was being formed, there came a time that the church, the church fathers, understood that we needed to identify sacred writings because not only did we have the sacred writings of the Old Testament, but we were also getting a collection of writings from the apostles and from witnesses. And I want to say this, this is another sermon altogether. Um, the church did not come together um, as Dan Brown and some others insinuated. The church did not come together to pick what would go into the New Testament any more than the Council of Jamnia came together to pick what would come together in the Old Testament. It was not a, well, I'll take this one, but not this one. This one, but not this one. The church came together, and instead of picking what we want in the Bible, they came together and recognized what was already regarded as the Word of God. They were making um, official what the church already believed. And it wasn't something that was a product of the church. It was a product of the Spirit. But there was some discussion and there were those, not a lot, but noteworthy names that created some discussion. Um, there was a problem with the book of James because they felt it contradicted the book of Romans. Now, the church knew then, as we know now, that no book has all truth and that books have different perspectives, but the truth is, is complementary. Um, whoop. Thought one of my grandkids had come up. <laughs> Stranger things have happened. And um, we, we know that um, the books were complementary, but Romans was the foundation of grace. It's, Romans is the ABCs of the gospel. Um, Romans puts meat on the outline that Paul gave to the Ephesians where he said, for by grace... You are saved through faith, not of works, uh, lest any man should boast. Paul talked about the righteousness which comes from God, his righteousness that is given to us. 
And uh, he, he is going to lay out in Romans the idea that um, the breastplate that Paul would describe in Romans, he would lay out to us that the breastplate of righteousness has two dynamics to it. They're not two equal but opposite. They are two complementary things. There is the righteousness that all of us as Christians have, which is freely given to us by the Father through the Spirit. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. When God declares us righteous, when God looks at us, He sees in us not the righteousness that we've worked up, not the righteousness that we earn, but He sees the righteousness of Jesus. Okay, so that's called um, positional righteousness. When I wear the whole armor of God and I put on the breastplate of righteousness, I wear that breastplate because I have identified inseparably with Jesus and all of my sin became his sin and all of his righteousness became my righteousness. So I am righteous through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. But there is another dynamic of righteousness. It's, now don't get me wrong, this is not two sides of a coin. It's a complementary thing. You know, when I was growing up, I, I used to believe, if I understood the teaching right, that we need, you know, we're saved by grace and by works. Had one preacher explain it to me this way. He said, it's like rowing across a lake with a rowboat. He says, you've got grace as one oar and you've got works as the other oar. And if you just row with works, you'll go in a circle. If you just row with grace, you'll go in a circle. But if you row with grace and works, you'll get to the other side. And that made a lot of sense. It satisfied me for a couple of years until I had a great revelation of theology. And I realized that we're not going to heaven in a rowboat, you know. <laughs> So that analogy broke down. It's we get to heaven, it's solely by grace. It's all Jesus and our response to Jesus. But at the same time, because we have been shown grace, we are to live a certain way that will produce works. The works don't get us to heaven. We've said this so many times. The works follow us to heaven. Uh, and I think it was... Um, Oh, goodness, I forgot now. I went blank, the preacher that said it. But he, he put it this way. He said the bottom line, I think it was Warren Wearsby now that I say it, and I'm probably wrong, and I'll worry about this the whole sermon. So <laughs> let me knock it out. I declare it's Warren Wearsby. But uh, this is what he said. He said when it comes to the breastplate of righteousness, he said what we've got to understand is we are called to believe. That's grace but we are also called to behave. We believe and we behave. And behavior is the common effect of believing. Uh, you know, the, the Bible says, he that says he uh, is following the Lord ought himself to live the way Christ lived. We know that grace is phenomenal. And what did Paul say to the Romans? He said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He said, if we have all this grace, should we just live any way we want to and say that grace is abounding? Here was his answer. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So Romans teaches us to believe and to behave. James told us the importance of faith but he said, faith without works is dead. Now, we, if we had 20 minutes, we could break down exactly what he was talking about. He wasn't saying that if you have faith and no works, you're not really saved. What he was saying is that faith is not designed to exist without works. Faith without works is not designed to exist that way. He says that the natural byproduct of grace and faith will be works. Again, not to get us to heaven, but as an evidence that the work of grace has been done in our life and to follow us to heaven. So you had some people that said, well, James says it's this and, and Romans says it's this. One of them's got to be wrong, but neither of them are wrong. Both of them are right. 
And in that same period when these kind of things first began to be discussed, we are presented with the book of Hebrews. Now, the book of Hebrews is... um, is a blending of the concepts found in Romans and James. The book of Hebrews says you are like the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians were excited for Christ's return, but so much time had passed that Christians were beginning to die. Christians were beginning to die. And you know what? Uh, If you're my age or older, you're, you're shocked. You're thinking there's an epidemic of death of, of people that I know. Well, it's, it's not a spiritual sign. It's just we're old and people we know are old and people that we grew up watching on TV are old. But it began to happen in Thessalonica and the Thessalonians began to believe, they really did. They believed that they may have missed the return of the Lord because so many people are going by way of the grave instead of being transformed when Christ appeared. And Paul had to tell them, just as he did the Corinthians, he said, uh, you know, do not think for a moment that your labor is in vain. Don't be weary in well-doing, as he said to the Galatians. You will reap in due season. And understand this, the Lord will come, and until he comes, we keep doing the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain. But the people of the dispersion and the, the diaspora, I should say, in, when Hebrews was written, they were saying, well, you know what? We, we've said that the Old Testament is just a pattern. We've said that so much of the Old Testament is just um, an illustration of what is to come. But I tell you what, we can see the temple, but we can't see Jesus. We see Jerusalem, but we don't see yet the heavenly city. And some of them were beginning to turn back. They were beginning to go back into Judaism, forgetting that that was types and shadows looking ahead. And they're saying, I'd rather embrace something I can touch and feel than something I have to see with the eye of faith. And they were in danger of what we call deconstructing the gospel today. They had been delivered the word of truth. They had partaken of the, partaken of the heavenly gift, Paul would say, and, or the writer of Hebrews would say. By the way, I don't think I said this in this service. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. We don't know. Um, but we know who it was written to. It doesn't sound like Paul's style, but it certainly matches Paul's theology. And there was never a question about Hebrews being part of the canon or not, even though we don't know the writer. They probably knew the writer, we don't. Uh, there were candidates such as Barnabas. There was a case for Barnabas, a case for Apollos. There's a case for Paul, but um, that's, we don't need to know that uh, to, to get the truth out of, out of Hebrews. And Hebrews was saying, look, everything that you used to be able to touch, you were shaken when you were told that it was just a shadow and a foreshadowing of what is real and what is coming. Now you are surrounded by things you can touch, but you're, you're being told that's not where you focus your attention. You focus your attention on a new priesthood. You focus your attention on a new temple. You focus your attention on a new kingdom. And it was straining them. It was stretching them. Some of them were falling away. Some of them were saying, well, uh, I'm, I'm going to adopt a cafeteria mindset. I'll take a little of this, but none of that. I'll take two of those, but don't even bring that near me, you know. And he said, you've got to remember that you have been trusted with a heavenly gift. You have partaken, and this is one of the frightening things that the writer of Hebrews says. He says, you cannot just do away with that and rewrite the contract and serve him on your own terms. Paul had made that clear to the Galatians who said, uh, we're going to create this, this syncretism. We're going to create this synthetic blend of old and new. And we're going to follow Jesus, but we're going to follow him a little differently than the early believers followed him because, you know, we're wiser, we're, we're, we're understanding things better. 
And even though they thought it was a look ahead, they were actually just going back under bondage. They were trying to serve God through the law, and the law had already shown us we couldn't successfully serve Him through the law. It was possible if we kept the law without failure, but Jesus was the only one to do that. And so we have something new. And this is what Paul said when he said, you think you've heard a new revelation? He says, I want to go on record as saying this. If anyone comes to you and denounces what you've been taught, if anyone comes to you and tries to get you to embrace a gospel other than what was plainly accepted by the believers in the early days, this is what Paul said. This, is, this, is, this doesn't sound very pastoral. He says, let them be damned to hell. If it's an angel from heaven that appears and preaches another gospel to you, consider them anathema. Consider them uh, as utter reprobates that are destined for destruction. That's how important us believing the truth is. That's why we need to understand today the big complaint against Christians from the world and from some of our own that have gone astray is that the church is intolerant. Loved ones, I want to tell you, I don't think the church is intolerant. In fact, I think we're making a mistake trying to be tolerant with too many things. But I will say this, we ought to be tolerant with people who disagree with us. We ought, I, I believe that an absolute pagan, you know, worshiper of polka dot goats, you know, if... <laughs> If they want to build a, a, a temple next door, we need to tolerate them. We need to, we need to be good neighbors. We need to be the best we can. They have that right as Americans to worship the way they want to worship, even though we want to, uh, even though we don't agree with it. But that's not a bad kind of tolerance. That's a that's an okay tolerance. That's even a perhaps a good tolerance to say you have the right just as we do. A bad tolerance is when we have to feel like we must adopt their core values or their core beliefs. Uh, because we are in a world today, loved ones, and it's going to get worse. If you don't believe, this is what the world says, if you don't believe exactly what I believe, it's because you are this or you are that or you are the other. There's no such thing as having a difference of opinion anymore. There's no such thing as seeing things differently. We are to be tolerant as far as being good neighbors and being loving. We want to remember that it's the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. But God forbid that we should change our doctrine or change our approach. You say, well, we just can't be so narrow. And I know I've talked about this for the last three weeks, but it's because I need to talk to you about it for four weeks. So... Uh, we, we need to understand Jesus, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Any other way, any other gatekeeper, any other shepherd that leads you through another way is a liar and a deceiver. Jesus was pretty intolerant, but he loved the world. He loved the world. And we as churches need to understand that it's not our mission to be angry. Uh, th there are days I wish the, the internet didn't exist anymore. I mean, I know that's horrible. I, I'm not a Luddite, but there are days I just see such venom and hatred and accusation. And it, it usually ends with John 3.16, you know. You are stinking, wretched. You need to go to hell and burn forever. But remember, God loves you. You know that. I, I, I hate that. I'm. I'm. I am. I am. Uh, I'm not a fan of social media. I know you say, "Oh, Pastor, a lot of good's being done." I know that. I know that, and I praise God for that. But as a pastor, my whole life has been spent trying to mend broken legs of sheep and trying to do all that. I know that there right now may be as much harm being done as there is good being done. But, I, you know, you say, well, you shouldn't feel that way. Well, I can feel this way because nobody in the world is going to do anything about what I'm saying, you know. Um, I'm, just, I'm just wanting to give you a, a glimpse of wisdom every now and then, you know. Uh, and I'll try to find some for you. But... Um, <laughs> 
the writer of Hebrews says this, we must pay the most careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. He said to you folks that are fighting this battle between what's right and what's wrong, what's old treasure, what's new treasure, uh, is there a way to Jesus outside the church or is the church the only way to Jesus? He said, you need to be very careful to pay attention to the original message. Pay attention to the original message so that you do not dress, uh, drift away. Um, the central truth is that I'm never static as a Christian. I'm either growing in grace or I'm going backwards. It's sort of like riding a bicycle. We ought to be pedaling. But when we stop pedaling, we can still go a while. But if you don't start pedaling again, the bicycle's going over. And uh, the epistle to the Hebrews displays five warning signs. There, there, are, there are five general signs that we'll call potholes on the road of righteousness. And we need to understand that when he says you're in a very complicated time, we're transitioning from this to this. Uh, the, the Gentiles have been brought into the church, not just the Jewish people. It was a time of great, great transition and great change. And he said, as you're on this road, there are five things that can be a pothole. You know what a pothole can do? A pothole usually, unless it's a sinkhole, you know, pothole is survivable, but it can throw your car so far out of alignment that it immediately begins to eat away at the tires or it causes uh, other bad uh, misapplications to happen on the car. And you can end up fighting to hold the car on the road because of a pothole. And he says, don't think just you, because these potholes are here, you can just run over them. He said, understand that even if a pothole doesn't stop you, it's very damaging. So I want to talk to you about these five potholes uh, that we as children of God need to pay attention to. I also want to quote Pastor Darren, uh, and I think I've got it pretty close to word for word. Darren used to teach this. I mean, he, he still does, but I mean, I've heard him say it. Talking about being on the right road, he said it's not just young Christians that can get in trouble. He said you can get on the right road and be on the right road a long time, but it doesn't matter how long or how far you've traveled down the right road. We are still as close to the ditches as we've ever been. You, you, you are just as close to going into a ditch whether you've driven a half mile or 8,000 miles. You have to be careful of the ditches. Now, let me give you some key terminology so that we understand where we're coming from. Uh, the, those of you, maybe, maybe some of you seminarians or, or others will understand the, the schools of thought between Arminianism and, and uh, Calvinism and Chidianism. You, you, you understand the differences. We're not here to talk about that today because that, that, is, that is something that if it's to be treated fairly and rightly, it needs to be done almost in a class setting rather than in a Sunday morning service. So I'm not talking about Calvinism and Arminianism. I'm talking about my definition for our purposes today. Uh, and I believe that these four categories are found in Hebrews. Um, not everyone would agree with that. Number one, we want to be maturing Christians. We want to be maturing Christians. If I'm a maturing Christian, I am increasing in conformity to the image of Christ as I know, grow, and sow. John Maxwell used to give that as keys to living. Uh, a maturing Christian knows, grows, and sows. He knows the Lord as his personal Savior. He's growing in his relationship with Jesus. And thirdly, it doesn't stop there. He's sowing. He's investing in the life of those that are coming along behind him. Um, so of maturing Christians, I'm growing into all things concerning Christ. I'm more like Jesus today than I was last year, hopefully. Next year, I'll be more like Jesus then than I am now. Hopefully, I'm maturing in the Lord. The Holy Spirit is also using me to invest into the lives of others. 
And by doing these things, I'm loving the Lord with all my strength and cherishing my neighbor as my own self. Therefore, I keep the two great commandments. I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I love my neighbor as myself. That's a maturing Christian. But it is a process. It doesn't come automatically. The seed for it comes when we pass from death to life, when we receive eternal life. But it's something that we have to grow in. Now, the second type of Christian is what I call a weak Christian or probably and maybe a better phrase would be an immature Christian, an immature Christian. When Paul uses the phrase in King James about a weak believer, uh, when you read what he's talking about, it's really about an immature believer that hasn't gone and processed through what they need to process through. But this is a believer who is not growing in faith. They're a believer. They're going to heaven but they're not growing in faith as often as not, not always, but as often as not, defeat marks the life of this immature believer. But it's not necessarily a result of overt rebellion. It's a result of immaturity. Uh, a lot of times people, they just say, my life is cursed. And, you know, their, their life is not cursed. They just need to start doing what they know Christians do. They need to start living the way Christians live. And uh, until they do that, they remain an immature believer. Now, um, the third phrase is backslider. That was big in the culture I grew up in, Pentecostal culture. Uh, a backslider is a believer who's out of fellowship with God because he's walking usually either in rebellion or disobedience. Immature Christian may just not know but a backslider knows and does the wrong thing anyway. Um, and um, we, we didn't always differentiate between backslider and apostate, which is the last thing, but I think we need to. The third or uh, fourth category is an apostate. This is one, I believe, who has come to faith um, but has defected from the faith. Some Christians teach an apostate was never saved to begin with. Um, I don't think that's true. There are, however, a lot of people that came to the Lord to just get relief instead of release, and they might not have been saved. They might have just come to get to, to, to get past the tough time they were in. And they might have never, they might have never truly accepted Jesus as Lord. But I don't think that a person we'd call an apostate was necessarily never saved. Others teach that an apostate was saved, but based on one of the passages in Hebrews, may no longer be renewed to a place of faith. In other words, these people believe that, yeah, apostasy can happen to a believer, but it's very rare. It's so rare that if a person becomes apostate, there's no path back to God for them. Uh, and that's a, there's more people that believe that than you might think. It's kind of a, a modified form of, of apostasy. Some teach that backsliders and apostates are synonymous terms. I don't think that's true. But loved ones, our goal is to avoid backsliding and apostasy, whatever you interpret that to be. We don't want to go there. I don't want to give you a definition of backsliding and you say, oh, well, that's okay. You know, still saved. I'm, I'm getting in. May not have a big mansion, but at least I'm getting in. Uh, there was a, a friend of mine that ended, ended her testimony every time. Just pray for me that I get to heaven. I don't care if it's by the skin of my teeth, you know. And our pastor used to say, no, 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 honey. If we go to heaven, we're going to go in gloriously because it's the grace of the Lord. But I guess as far as I know, she died and went to heaven thinking it was going to be by the skin of her teeth. There was another lady in our church. I love that lady. She, I just, well, I, love, I love Jesus so much. Oh, I just love him so much. When the rapture occurs, I want to go in the rapture, even if I have to grab hold of somebody's legs on their way up. And, you know, I believe she loved Jesus that much. They, they just didn't understand. Their theology, their theology was a theology of works. 
I might not can do it, but I'm okay if it's just by the skin of my teeth. Or I, I, might, I might not can live it, but I'll grab Sister Alice's legs on the way up. And, no, that's not, that's not the way it works. What we are saying is that wherever we're at, our goal is to be a maturing Christian. And however we live, we don't ever want to find ourselves among backsliders or apostates. We want to be growing and maturing in faith. So with that in mind, let me give you the five things that I'm calling potholes that we are to avoid. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, remembering, you say, well, the Lord's going to have to keep me. Well, it, of course, you know, unless the Lord builds a house, the labor, you know, the workman builds in vain. But this is what the writer of Hebrews says. Pay the most careful attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away. Uh, in the New Living Translation, there are five or six passages um, where it says, make every effort to do so and so. It's the same idea. Here's pothole number one is the danger of neglect. Now, under each text that I use, I'll give you a phrase that typifies um, the idea that we're presenting. We, number one, have to be careful of neglecting. You know, it, it's easy to just say, well, I'm saved. I know I'm going to heaven. I know I'm not going to hell. And then just letting Christianity become kind of a side issue that I don't really work uh, with that in mind, but I, I keep it in mind, but I don't give it the attention that it deserves. And the word that is used when it says we don't want anything to drift away, and it's used a couple of times in Hebrews uh, for the idea of slipping away. Uh, it's the idea of a ring that has slipped off a hand. Now, I don't believe that Hebrews teaches that we can lose our salvation and not know it like we lose a ring and not know it. I don't think that's the application at all. The application is this. It's very easy to let something that is very valuable slip away from you if you don't have diligence uh, watching over it. I remember, and, and he, the, the word that was used carried the idea. It was like the writer was saying, you've all had a ring slip off your hand and you didn't know where it was. He says, the things of God can be like that. You not even realize that you're slack in these things. It's like a ring sliding away. I remember when I asked my lovely bride to marry me. Uh, you know, I mean, 44 years ago, I, I said, um, will you? And she said, yes. And I said, that's wonderful. And everything was beautiful. And I pulled, I, I, I got her attention by pulling out the ring that I'd bought. I, I put together all the money I had, all the money I had. And I went to a wholesale jeweler and I said, what can this get me? And he gave me a ring that was so beautiful, an engagement ring. And I, I, it got lost somewhere through the years. We don't know where it is. But I wish I had it to show it to you because if that ring, if you held it just right, you could, I'm, I'm not kidding, you could almost see the stone. Uh, if, if you got a spotlight or an air raid light and put it under, it would glisten. And I, I, I gave her that ring and she was so proud. She was so, and I, and I was so proud that she said yes to me. And she had come to visit me. I was a youth pastor at a church. She had come. Her grandmother lived in the same town where I was youth pastor. And she was staying with her grandmother. And I gave her the ring. And she had been showing it to everybody. It had not been sized yet because I wanted it to be a total surprise. And we were sitting at um, uh, a dinner at church. Uh, might have even been rehearsal dinner. I just can't remember. But we were sitting there at a dinner and somebody said, Ramona, Ramona, let us see your ring. And she held up her ring and it was gone. And I thought, I'm bankrupt. 
Well, thankfully, she looked, and it had just come off when she had her hands in her lap. It was laying there in her lap on the dress. She put it back on, went to get it sized, uh, you know, uh, right away. Um, but she said, I can't, I, I didn't even feel it slip away. The writer of Hebrews says there are things, if you don't pay attention, there are things that can slip away. I'm not even talking about salvation, although you can make that application as well if you want to. But he says there are things of God that if you neglect them, there's as much chance that it'll just slip away and you'll lose a grace or you'll lose an anointing uh, or, um, or you'll lose um, an awareness if you're not careful. You say, well, I don't believe that you know, that happens. Well, the writer of Hebrews says, just pay attention to things that are important. Be sure that you exercise due diligence to be sure that these things get done, to be sure that these things take place. When I gave my heart to the Lord, I developed in junior high and senior high an understanding that every day needed to begin with a devotional life. Every day I needed to pray Every day I needed to read. And if something happened, I overslept or something like that, um, I, I realized that um, um, I, I was at a disadvantage if I started the day without reading and praying. I would almost panic. I, I would just almost panic if I didn't have time to read and pray in the morning. And I would get to my knees as quickly as I could that afternoon. When I went to Bible college, um, the, I, there were several professors. One, I think, was especially trying to mature us. And he said, you've got to understand that we're saved by grace, not by works. He said, some of you are being told that you have to have a devotional life every day. And if you don't have a devotional life, you can't function. Well, that was me. I really couldn't function without devotional life. He said, I've been living for the Lord a long time. And you need to grow up to the point where you realize if you can't pray every morning, that doesn't mean that you're going to hell or that doesn't mean that you're not a strong Christian. Well, that's technically true, but I tell you the way I and a bunch of other students interpreted that. We interpreted that as saying, oh, when you grow up in maturity, you don't have to do this. Or when you grow into maturity, you outgrow the need for this. Well, I think what he was trying to say is it doesn't need to be some insecure obsession. But I tell you what I found out uh, later that year, I found out that what I thought, what this professor talked me into thinking of as maturity, I found out it wasn't maturity, it, it, was, it was cold-heartedness. It was indifference. It was neglect. And I'm thankful that before that first year ended, and especially going into the second year, God established a, a devotional life in my life that I've never walked away from since. I never am so mature that I don't need the basics. It's like saying, well, when I was a baby, I needed to eat and breathe, but I'm mature now. I, I don't need, oh, you'll always need to eat and breathe. You'll always need to drink water. So don't neglect things that you think you've grown beyond. Okay, here's number two. There's the danger or the pothole of insensitivity. He said, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. See, this is why, you know, we need to, he's saying this to Christians. You're, you're, you're turning to God, but now you're turning away he called them brothers and sisters. He said, don't let an unbelieving heart form in your life because it's sinful. He says, instead of turning away from the living God, encourage one another daily as long as it is called today, meaning while we're able to, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The, the, the idea here is not a slipped off ring. The idea here is a hardened heart. Loved ones, I want to tell you, be careful that you don't mistake, using the other analogy, be careful that you don't mistake a hard heart for a mature heart. You know, and I, I hear people from time to time, oh, we're not newlyweds. We've been married 15 years. We don't carry on like we did as newlyweds. 
you ought to. You ought to. You say, well, you know, we've just kind of gotten used to each other. No, you probably started taking each other for granted. I know one may be more romantic than the other, but don't mistake a hard heart for a mature heart. I, you know, I, I've been married 43 years, like I said, and every once in a while I'll be out in the yard working and I'll, I'll say, say, Ramona, Ramona, she'll come out and she said, what? I said, I just want to be sure you're still crazy about me. <laughs> and she'll usually, and she says it's so sweet. Yes, I'm still crazy about you. <laughs> And every once in a while, I can tell I've overdone it, and I say, are you still crazy about me? She said, well, I'm crazy because of you. <laughs> Don't mistake a hardened heart for a mature heart. You say, well, I, I don't know that you can really tell the difference. Well, I think we need to put neglect and insensitivity together. They're like twins. Um, and I think of Samson. Samson had an anointing and a spiritual gift that when it manifested, it was always seen. See, some of us, we may have spiritual gifts that operate and nobody knows it until we say something or do something. But Samson, I mean, he takes off, you know, multi-thousand pound city gates. You know, it, it's kind of hard to miss the strength and the anointing of this man. And, but he began to play with it. He became a hardened individual. I tell you, Samson is an amazing man. He had one of the most phenomenal giftings in the Old Testament. But unless I'm missing it, I don't find a place ever where he prayed or called upon God or gave God glory till right there at the end of his life when he was asking God for revenge. Loved ones, the more anointed our life be, the more we need to be careful that we never take that for granted. We, we, never, we never take that um, as, as normal operating procedure. We need to understand the beauty of spiritual gifts. We need to have the beauty of spiritual sensitivity. Or we'll be like Samson. He played around and always the Spirit of God would empower him until the time came and he said that he, he told the secret of his hair. She cut his hair off. He stirred himself and he stood up like he did before. And this is, this is the, the nightmare verse of the book of Judges. He did not understand that the spirit had departed from him. Lebanon, I want to tell you, the, the scariest part was not about what was, you know, it was about to happen to Samson. The scariest part is that he could have such an out there anointing that everything changed when the anointing came upon him, but he took it for granted. When it was gone, he didn't even have the spiritual sensitivity to see something's wrong. Churches can go on past victories. Pastors can go on past victories. Teachers, prophets, whoever can go. They can live because God always comes through, but the moment you get a hardened heart, you are on a countdown to the day when God doesn't show up. I know that you say, that's, that's negative. Of course it is. It's, it is negative. It's frightening. It ought to give you nightmares. That's why we need to always be sensitive. Is this too heavy for you guys? You all right? Okay. It, tell somebody else about it if it is. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I want to tell you, I, I see it. I've seen it through the years. And it is a frightening frightening thing. It's worse than anything out of a Stephen King novel. The idea that we are so flippant or casual or insensitive to the move of God in our life that even when he disappears, we don't know it. We haven't paid enough attention to his presence to know that it is gone. And it gives us a hardened heart. You can be raised in church, but your heart is so hard. You can be a former pastor, but your heart is so hard. 
You can be a former elder, but your heart has become so hard. And we need to, this is why I keep telling the kids over and over again, and I keep telling you over and over again, that's why we have an altar service every service. It's because we never want to get to the point where we don't hear the Spirit of God pulling and tugging. We never want to get to the point where we think, well, I made this mess, I can fix it. No, you can't. We need the anointing of the Holy Spirit to be a part of our lives, and we need to be sensitive to it. When Ezekiel wrote his prophecy, and it was the prophecy of God lifting his hand off Israel and, and off the temple in particular, and the Holy Spirit departed. Oh, what a, what a horrible thought that is. But the Holy Spirit was in the holy place of the temple. But as the rebellion went on, we see the Holy Spirit moving out of the holy place. And, and more rebellion continues, and he, he is like a long and inner wall. Uh, it's still in the, in the temple proper. But he, he watches what Israel does. Then he goes to the wall of the city, and the Holy Spirit stops there to watch what Israel will do. And finally, Israel or Judah persists in their rebellion and the Spirit leaves, using the imagery of flying away. Loved ones, we need, I, I beg you in the name of Jesus, to, 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 I'd rather you be too conservative than too liberal. I'd rather you be too sensitive than to be too callous. Understand that we want to live our lives in such a way that when the Spirit touches something in us, when the Spirit touches something in us, that our response is to immediately obey. I, 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 I'm not using, I'm using myself as an example, not to pat myself on the back, because if I was trying to do, do that, I wouldn't have tell you that I said something I shouldn't have said. But at our minister's retreat where we, the pastors just get together and it's a time for seeking God and encouraging and learning, I said something. Um, I was quoting, uh, if I remember, something that was said in the past, and it was a bad word, not a, not a vulgar word, but just in, inappropriate for a Christian to use. I was quoting, and I thought, you know, it, if I use the word, you know, it... it they'll understand what I'm saying, uh, but they won't think that I'm using bad language. And I used the word, and uh, it made the point, and everybody understood. And when we left, as soon as I got alone, the Spirit of God touched my heart. I mean, he seized my heart. And he said, I said, Lord, what is it? I, I said, I know, I know this feeling. I've done something. And I don't live in a relationship where the Lord pounds me on the head all the time. But I felt, I knew I had grieved the spirit and, I, and I, I started to say, Lord, what have I done? And no sooner, I couldn't even get the words out of my mouth before I realized the Lord was saying, you didn't have to use that word. That word doesn't belong in your vocabulary. That word doesn't need uh, to be said. And your ministers, your staff don't need to hear you say it. And I, you know, I said, Lord, I am, I am so sorry. And the next time I get them all together, I will apologize and I'll make that right. Uh, you say, well, that's being a little too sensitive. Well, I tell you what, I made the apology. They accepted it very graciously and it set me free. I, I'd rather be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. I'd rather go and say, I'm sorry. That's what Jesus taught. He said, if you have done someone wrong, even if you're at the altar preparing to offer your sacrifice, he said, tie up your, your lamb or your goat or whatever it is and go to the person you've wronged, make that right. And loved ones, that's not legalism. That is freedom. That is freedom. So we, we want to be sure that we don't neglect so that something slips off like a loose ring. We want to be sure that we don't make room for insensitivity because a hardened heart will, will result. Number three, we want to avoid the pothole of an undisciplined life. The catchphrase I want to use with this is don't live a careless life. Um, 
Now, this is a tough one because when we first start discovering liberty, uh, usually discipline is the first thing to go. Because, when, you know, when a person... When a person starts discovering that they might have been brought up with a lot of rules, um, if they're not careful, their response will be, well, then I can do anything I want to. And boy, that'll get you in trouble. Just because you have the freedom to do something doesn't mean you ought to do something, you know? Um, and boy, I sort of had to use examples, but I'll get in trouble with somebody else. So I'm tired of being in trouble. I'll just, I won't give an example. But we, we need to be sure that we live a disciplined life. It doesn't have to be legalism. It do, we don't have to live like the Pharisees. But we need to understand that we need to discipline our lives because not, just because I might have freedom to do something doesn't mean I need to do something. That was Paul's argument with the, the meat offered to idols. He said, I know that I have freedom to eat meat offered to idols because it's sanctified by the word of God in prayer. But he said, if I'm in a setting where somebody doesn't have that freedom, I don't have to eat meat offered to idols. And boy, I tell you what, we, I think the Pentecostal and charismatic movement especially in the 70s and 80s learned that some of our rules might be a little heavy. So what we did is many of us adopted a mindset that said, I'll do whatever I want to, I'm free. You know, a big one was, I'm free to drink, I'm free to have a glass of wine. And that may be true, but has it ever occurred to you that you're also free to not have a glass of wine? You're free to not do this or that or the other? I'm, I'm, I'm just saying, we typically, whenever we're in error of something, whenever we realize that God wants to set us free, we just go into bondage on the other side. So wisdom <laughs> is a disciplined life where in the old living Bible, Paul said, I bring my life under the discipline so that I do the things I ought to do, not the things I want to do. Now, I've often said, I taught this in uh, school of discipleship. Discipline is the lowest form of devotion. Discipline is the lowest form. You don't want to go tell, you know, don't kiss your wife this afternoon, pull out your day timer or whatever and say, ha! 493 days I've given you a kiss and told you I loved you in a row. In a row. Aren't you glad of my discipline? Well, I'm proud of you for understanding what's important. You need to do that. I agree. But I tell you this, you're not going to thrill her <laughs> by saying, ha, checked it off again. Another kiss. Here's one on the lips. That counts as two. No. Discipline is the lowest form of expression to do something because you have to do it. To your husband, honey, I want you to know I'm faithful to you because I've disciplined myself. Well, you need to discipline yourself, but I hope that's not why you're faithful to your husband. You understand what I'm saying. It is the lowest form of expression, this idea of discipline, but it is absolutely indispensable. It has to be there. Discipline has to be there. You just don't want to run for office on it with your wife or your husband, okay? He says that we need to be careful that we don't live a careless life. By this time, he said, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truth of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Now, before I go on here, I know we got to hurry, but milk is not a bad thing. Peter told us to desire the sincere milk of the word, so that we could grow. There's a time for milk. There's a time for meat. And it's not that milk, you know, milk gets bad, bad press. You know, I, I told you a few months ago, I read an article that said humanity is the only species that continues to drink milk after, you know, being weaned from their mother. And uh, it talks about how, how, wrong we are and how stupid we are for drinking milk when we don't need milk. Now, I'm a big milk fan, you know, 
Um, so I read that, and I, it kind of irritated me a little bit, somebody trying to take my milk away from me. <laughs> I, I won't even drink 2% milk. It has to be whole milk or goat's milk, you know. Yeah, we're, we're on the same page here. We've got revival breaking out over here. <laughs> and 1% milk, that is, that is water pretending to be milk. That's all, that's all it is. So I love milk. And they said, you know, humans ought to be ashamed. They're the only ones that drink milk. And, you know, I, I thought we're also the only species that's ever gone to the moon and back. Maybe it's because of the milk. Maybe. So milk's not a bad thing. But in this context of Hebrews chapter 5, listen to me. Milk is defined this way. Milk is good it's previously digested food. It's for a life that's not able to do heavy digesting and processing. Baby system can't handle lasagna. Baby system can't handle sirloin steak or whatever. So mom eats and her body processes the food, turns it into milk, and she nurses the baby. It's previously digested food. Um, he said, I'm thinking that you guys are maturing in the Lord and you're in the word on your own, but you need somebody to just take you and put a nipple in your mouth and let you get to the basics. Loved ones, please understand, I know I sound like I'm cynical, but it's only because I'm cynical. And, <laughs> and I love the History Channel, but be careful of stuff you see on TV, and especially scholar. So-and-so's a scholar. Do you know there's not even a definition of a scholar in the sense that you get, if you do this, you're a scholar. If you do that, you're a scholar. Some of the best scholars I know don't even have a college degree. Don't, don't, don't let the History Channel tell you that somebody is a scholar or an expert or an authority because they say they are, because there's more garbage that is on cable television right now and online where, where people say, well, I've, I've been to school. I've been in. And for those of you who don't know me, I mean, I've got a doctorate. I believe in education. I, I'm, I'm not intimidated by education, but we, 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 are a, we are a culture that doesn't understand the difference between wisdom and knowledge and doesn't understand what real knowledge even consists of. And um, I, I, I Let me put it to you the way old Don Brankle used to put it. He said, I don't mind. Don Brankle was an evangelist. He came to a church one time and, and uh, you know, I was there. He said, we've had service for four nights. Y'all are in revival. You're a great church. You don't even need me to be here. He's packed up and left. I, I mean, he, he was that kind of guy. He was one of the most phenomenal evangelists I've ever seen. And he said, now it's time. He said, when y'all come to church on Sunday morning, he said, your pastor ought to be able to give you some fresh meat because uh, he ought to be ahead of you in his learning and in his discipleship. He, he, he said, I'm not saying that he has to be, and a lot of pastors aren't. He said, there's nothing wrong with getting, uh, you know, some, some stuff from your pastor that you haven't gotten in your own life. But he said, most of the stuff you ought to get, he ought to be that you get, he ought to simply be confirming what God has been doing in your heart. Because if not, you're just going to be on milk all the time. And uh, he said, now I don't mind young Christians, baby Christians being on the bottle. He said, I am delighted to take a young Christian and put a bottle in their mouth and give them the, the nurture and the, and the milk of God's word. He said, I just get frustrated when you have to part the whiskers to get the nipple in. And the writer of Hebrews says, listen, you, you, you're, you're trying to go into areas of revelation. You're trying to go into areas of maturity that you're not qualified for. You need to go on a milk diet until you get the basics down. And I'm, I'm not saying that's true of anyone here, but I'm saying this many people, it's got to be true of some. We need to understand how valuable it is to be in the word 
and to not take our progress reports from prophecies, but to take our reports from the Word. We believe in prophecy. We believe in dreams and visions. But all of that is to enhance and, 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 and illuminate uh, the, the written Word of God. And because the further we get from the Word of God, the more dangerous we stand. Okay, I better hurry because y'all are looking a little, a little undisciplined. <laughs> Number four is the danger of withdrawal. Um, the, the, the key idea here is a selfish life. Um, we, we, we say we don't go to church. I'm not part of a church. Um, because we think it's a statement of strength and independence. But it's really not. It's a, it's a mark of selfishness. Because the Bible, first of all, commands us to come together. Now, we can argue over whether that means home churches, small groups, big churches. Uh, there's value and validity to every venue that, that we can have. I, I understand that. But I see it over and over again where people say, I don't need other Christians. I don't need fellow believers. And that is a dangerous thing. Listen to what Hebrews said in chapter 10. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. He says, now believe what you've been taught. Go back home, believe what you've been taught. And then because God is faithful. And the second things he, he says is after you've done that, consider how you may inspire or encourage one another on toward love and good deeds. He said, now get back home, embrace what you've been taught, find a way to be an encouragement to others that you're gathering with. And then he says this, don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but come to encourage one another. And then he closes it this way. He says, this is especially important as you see the day approaching. The sign of the Lord's return, the sign of the maturing of the tares is not an indicator for us to withdraw. It's an indicator for us to come together so that we don't live a selfish life. And here's number five. Um, there's the danger of apostasy. Now, just to bring you up to speed, there's the danger of the slipped ring. That's neglect. There's the danger of the hardened heart. That's insensitivity. There's the danger of carelessness. That's the lack of discipline. There's the danger of withdrawal, which means I live a selfish life. And then there's the danger of apostasy, which is summed up in the idea of there must be another way. There must be another way. Every deconstructive take on Christianity says there must be another way. Uh, every cult says there must be another way. And loved ones, there is no orthodox Christianity. There is no orthodox Christian movement that says Jesus is one of the ways and I can discover the, the, the one who is God through Jesus or through Muhammad or through Buddha or through uh, uh, Krishna or through, you know, uh, any, any other source. Apostasy says there is a way and if you defect from it, you have put yourself in a situation where you have no options. Hebrews 10 says this, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Now, when I was a little kid, boy, this scared me to death. If we keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there's no sacrifice left. I read that and I thought that meant if I keep making the same mistakes over and over again, which is exactly what I was doing. If I keep making the same mistakes over and over again, then there, God says, you, no more sacrifice. You, you've, run out of, you've run out of passes. You've run out of excused sins. But that's not what that scripture is saying. 
It goes on to say anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He said, how much more so in this better covenant with one who is greater than Moses? How much more so should we be held accountable? When he says, if we keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sin is left. I'm convinced of this. I've worked on this for years. I believe what the writer of Hebrews is saying is this. Mike, I'll use Mike as an example. Because Rachel, I know you can redeem him. It's like the Holy Spirit is saying, Mike, if you go on living in your sin and reject, after you've come to the knowledge of the truth and you keep on going away that's in rebellion to God, this is what the Spirit says. There's no other sacrifice out there that you'll find. You, you, you can't try this and let that be your sacrifice. You can't try that and let your... Mike, if you really want to go to heaven, if you really want to deal with your sin... You've come to the knowledge of Jesus and you've got to understand there is no other sacrifice for sin. So one of the most blind people that would ever exist would be someone who has come to the knowledge of Jesus, has served him and then says, I'm going to go another way. I'm going to find another path. I'm going to get to another gate. The writer of Hebrews says there is no other gate. There is no other sacrifice. And that's why uh, Hebrews 2.1, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard that we do not drift away.